1: And welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Christopher Lee about his book, Kwame Anthony Appia, published in 2021 in the Routledge Critical Thinking Series. Dr. Lee is currently an associate professor of history and of of African Studies at Lafayette um, College. Dr. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, I wonder if we could start by you telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Uh, I Well, as you mentioned, I'm an associate professor of history uh, with a joint appointment in Africana Studies at Lafayette College in Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, <clears throat> I've uh, published a number of books. Um, this is my sixth book. And my main research interests are in twentieth-century uh, African history. In fact, I've I've done most of my work has been in southern Africa um, and in South Africa. So uh, Anthony Appiah is sort of an outlier to that, and that's perhaps something we could talk about. Um, but I am interested in, in intellectual history as well, um, histories of, of decolonization and uh, post-colonial histories and um something that I do in my book is situate Anthony Apia within those conversations. And then finally, I'm also very interested in um, issues of race and racial identity. And Apia, of course, has spoken on those issues as well. So um, even though, even though uh, Apia, you know, geographically speaking, doesn't fit into my specialization um my regional specialization nonetheless he has uh intersected with with different themes and issues that i'm i'm very interested in and that i've explored in other books
1: um and you know just to piggyback on what you were saying uh sure in deciding to write about um, Kwame Anthony Appiah, um I think what what's what's really interesting about the book, and I think we would like to hear a little bit about that, is just how um, you know how he came into your radar, you know, and you know how he, uh, he he you know not only is he someone obviously that 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 speaks to issues that that you have uh, that you work with, but um, but obviously offers a series of tools. Um, That are not unique to a particular part of Africa. So um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that process of making the decision of examining someone uh, who, as you said in your introduction, is not only still alive um, but still producing (laughs) quite, uh, you know, prolifically. Um, And uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a scary thought, you know, to to write, especially for someone like you're a historian, and and it's always Easy to, or easier to, to talk about people who are not alive anymore. So, uh, if you can tell us just about the process of thinking about uh, why do you write this book, why, why why write this book, and why do you think that y- y- you could write this book uh, as well as you did?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, there are a number of answers. I mean, one one answer is that uh, I first read Anthony Appia when I was in graduate school. Um, so this would have been during the 1990s. <clears throat> and in truth I can't you know I don't I don't have a specific memory uh, of you know hearing about him and then reading him. it's it's he was just sort of one of these figures who was uh, to use an expression part of the discourse of African studies during the during the 1990s and um, in fact the the copy of In My Father's House, which is, of course, the book I was, uh, which was the entry point for me um, in terms of understanding apia as as it was for so many other people, so many other scholars. Um, when I was working on this book, the the copy of In My Father's House that I was using the whole time was the copy I had in graduate school. So in a way, it was very interesting for me to go back to my graduate school copy of In My Father's House and see what I had marked and see the notes I had taken on the margins and sort of revisit this text that um, I had encountered, you know, over 20 years ago. Um, and also, you know, had a powerful effect on me. I, and, you know, I certainly wasn't alone in that. I mean, it was a book that, um, as I suggested, was talked about, um, cited, it, had received the Herskovitz Prize. Um, it was very well received. I should say quickly too, that when I was in graduate school, this is a, at Stanford University, um, one of my <clears throat> professors there was, was V.Y. Vy Madembe, um, the, you know, the author of the invention of Africa and the idea of Africa and so forth. And so another African philosopher, um, in many ways very different from Apia. I mean, Mudimbe is, you know, more closely tied to a continental tradition, um, whereas Apia, you know, being an Anglophone African intellectual is more tied to the analytic tradition of of Britain. But nonetheless, both of them um, knew each other, and I knew that. uh, And... um, you know, so certainly Madembe's respect and appreciation for Apia um, rubbed off on me. And, and so working with Madembe was also um, an entry point for thinking about Apia and thinking about African philosophy more generally. Um, I will say, too, you know, it's, it's, you know, Apia is somebody certainly who I've, you know, sort of kept tabs on. And I, you know, went on to buy his other books, *The Ethics of Identity*, *Cosmopolitanism*. But at the same time, I, I will say that you know I moved on to other thinkers, of course, other books. Um, and as I, you know, started teaching and 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 you know publishing my own research, um, Apia wasn't necessarily in the foreground. I did I did teach Apia, but. Um, you know, in terms of my own writing and research, he wasn't, he wasn't really um, someone who figured largely, but that changed, you know, over the past, I don't know, maybe let's say three to four years. I did, I did a book on, and I should say this is somewhat, somewhat of a a long-winded answer to your question, but I mean, it, but it gets to the fact that, you know, it, it wasn't, a book that I imagined doing say five years ago. But having said that, I did publish a book on, on Franz Fanon in 2015. And um, really that book was in a sense, you know, a first engagement with thinking about African intellectual history, um, you know, thinking about individual uh, philosophers and, um, you know, Fanon, again, is another figure who had a big impact on me. And, you know, I'm certainly not alone in that. Um, But thinking about Fanon too, I mean, one of the points that I made in that book is, are the ways in which Fanon, you know, he's, he's a reference point for sure. And sometimes too much of a reference point. That is to say that, um, you know, he's, you know, a lot of things get attached to him and he can be overdetermined in a number of ways. And, and in that book, I even said, you know, there, there are points at which Fanon becomes kind of a cliche, like Fanon explains any number of situations, and we sort of lose track of the historical Fanon. And so, moving to APIA, one of the questions that came out of came out for me um, working on that book on Fanon was the fact that African intellectual history, of course, is wide ranging and diverse, but in terms of you know emphasis, I felt like many. Many scholars and much of our teaching focuses on this particular generation, this you know generation of of revolutionaries, of of intellectuals engaged in decolonization. So here I'm thinking of not only Fanon but um, Cabral, uh, Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, chronologically later, but nonetheless part of the same uh, part of the same group as, as a person like Steve Biko in South Africa. The upshot is that you know there's a lot of attention to activist intellectuals, and I think you know that's justified in many ways. But it it left open a question for me about what comes next, like what's wh- who are the intellectuals that come after decolonization, um, that you know grow up, are educated, um, experience an intellectual becoming, within the context of a post colony. And it became clear to me that Anthony Appia is a good example of that. I mean, his father Joe Appia was active in the nationalist struggle, uh, was friends and and later uh, an antagonist of of Kwame Nkrumah, and Anthony Appiah being the son of this you know nationalist leader, you know, it seemed like he was he would be an interesting example to to explore you know, this next generation of, of African intellectuals. So something I do in my book is, is therefore position um, Apia, you know, not as, a, not as a successor to somebody like Fanon, even though Apia has written about Fanon, but more thinking about Apia as part of a generation that succeeded the generation of, of Kwame Nkrumah, of Franz Fanon, and so forth. And 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 doing that, trying to you know, rethink how we understand um, African intellectual history from a generational standpoint, um, from the standpoint of of the post-colony, after decolonization, and so so those sets of questions really interested me. And then, of course, to go to your your final or, or one of your final points, I mean, he he's also still alive, um, and you know, there was something that presented an interesting challenge for me too. Uh you know, I'm a historian. Essentially, you know, much of the you know, many of the subjects I work with are, you know, subjects that, you know, were were the direct participants, they're not alive anymore. And Apia, you know, is alive, he's, you know, very productive. He's the ethicist for the New York Times magazine. Um and so he's he presented a challenge in that sense. And uh, so, yeah, it was just all these things that contributed to a number of incentives for me to to, to engage with him. And, um, yeah, perhaps we can unpack some of those responses, but that's, that's sort of an, an initial laundry list of reasons why I was attracted to this project.
1: No, uh, and like I said, I think um, you, you set that up very well in... Um in your introduction and as well as Mm -hmm. what probably is like, uh, what probably was a a more significant problem, uh, which you talk about, which is how do you speak or try to define, you know, an intellectual who he himself has kind of made a career, uh, kind of questioning, um, the usefulness or the nature of labels or, or in this case of the notion of identity, um, and yeah. so maybe we can talk a little bit about that uh, and, and, you know, talk, especially in, in your first chapter, when you start talking about like the notion of African epistemologies and where Appiah, particularly in, in my father's house, starts to starts to set out this sort of like, um, you know, project of uh, questioning uh, identity, questioning what it means to be African, what it means to be an African philosopher, et cetera, et cetera. While at the same time you're right. trying to sort of pretty much or try to understand him, um, both as a, like as you said in in this sort of tripartite way as part of um, you know a generation, but also as part of uh, of an African tradition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, h- how how right. did you try to negotiate that little mine uh, landmine?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, one thing that Um, you know, I I tried to do in the book is, is point to how, uh, you know, Anthony Appiah has evolved over time in terms of his thinking and in terms of the positions that he's, he's made. Um, In other words, I, I, and I say this in the introduction that, you know, I don't want to fall into the trap of, you know, categorizing him in a strict uh, or fixed way um, I do think it's important to think about him as an African philosopher. Um, that's one thing I will, you know, in a sense, emphasize, I think that, um, I mean, and I should say quickly, you know, his, <clears throat> excuse me, his, his, mother's British, his father's Ghanaian. So he grew up, uh, you know, biracial or multiracial. Um, he was born in London, grew up in Kamasi, you know, one of the largest cities in Ghana. He, he was educated in Britain, went to Cambridge University um, and has spent most of his uh, career in the United States. So, you know, he has multiple geographies, multiple identities, and I'm, I'm reluctant to, you know, say he's one thing. But on the other hand, you know, in his writing, he constantly references Ghana and Kamasi and and obviously his book, In My Father's House, is very much an homage to his father and the impact that his father and by extension, um, uh, Ashanti culture and, and, uh, Ghana, you know, head on his thinking and head on his own identity. So, you know, Apia is a, is a person who both embraces, you know, Ident- different identities for different reasons, but on you know on other occasions is is very elusive, and I you know I don't you know by extension you know I you know he's also not unusual in that regard. I mean you know something that I point out in the introduction of my book as well is you know some of the questions that Appiah was was dealing with, um, raising, uh, and attempting to find answers for in his book in My Father's House, which came out in 1992. Um, these questions being is it you know how do you how can you be how can you be African and modern at once how can you be traditional and modern at once how can you be uh, Western educated and and you know Ghanaian you know all these sorts of dualities um, you know a, a lot of those questions to my mind presage the the kind of questions that a number of novelists uh, Anglophone novelists um have addressed since, you know, 2000. And here, of course, I'm thinking of, you know, writers like Chimamanda Adichie, um, and Teju Cole, um, you know, a lot of African writers who've, you know, achieved mainstream popularity. And one of the reasons they've done that is, is because they've, you know, engaged exactly with these questions of, you know, trying to redefine what it means to be African, um, the possibility of, you know, you know, being cosmopolitan or Afropolitan um, and what the meaning of that is. Um, and I think Anthony Appiah basically, you know, identified some of these issues early on. Jimmy said too that, you know, of course, there are other African thinkers and writers who are also grappling with these issues um, in their novels, in, in their writings. And, and um, I think that, but I do think Appiah is an important figure for again, identifying these issues and trying to think them through. And I think it's, you know this, this afropolitan sensibility, um, and there's certainly critiques of it too. I sh- and this is something we could talk about later as well. I mean, afropolitanism has been critiqued as as being elitist, as being, you know ver- you know, a very small fraction of, of people considering, you know the the magnitude of of um Africa more generally you know not many people get to live lives of you know being Ghanaian and living in New York City or studying at Oxford or Cambridge and you know going to Lagos for Christmas every year um you know things of this nature i think i think there is a kind of elitism with afropolitanism but nonetheless i you know i think that apia you know to his credit you know he's he's Seeking to complicate how we think of African identity. Um, And in that sense, you know, moving to go back to one of my earlier points, moving away from the kind of Manichaean uh, framework and dynamic that undergirds so much of anti-colonial thought. That is to say, you're, you know, you're Algerian or you're French, um, you're Ghanaian or you're British. You're African or you're European. You're black or you're white, and you know, consciously and unconsciously, Apia was you know seeking to disrupt that that Manichean thinking. And um, I think that you know, in my father's house is very much a project about um, you know deconstructing. Deconstructing those binary frameworks, whether it's along lines of race, culture, nativism, so on and so forth. So, um, so yeah, I feel like I've once again digressed from some of your larger questions. But, but that um, you know, I think I think that Apia, you know, crystallized a number of things during the nineteen nineties um, in terms of you know rethinking certain categories and rethinking certain identities, like being African or like pan-Africanism that have continued to affect scholarship up to the present. Um, having said that too, I think that, you know, in some ways, Apia is, uh, has become out of step with certain kinds of politics, particularly with, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and and this kind of thing. But I will say that, you know, Apia, to his credit, you know, he's, he's, he's been someone who's you know, seeking to strip away illusions, you know, s- seeking to find some kernel of truth. And that's the philosopher that he is. Um, and I, I think, too, that in his early work, such as In My Father's House, where he was, in a sense, very strident about, you know, critiquing certain identities as being fictions, in his more recent book, The, the Lies That Bind, he's, he's changed a bit. He's said that, well, even though race is a fiction, um, a fiction in a scientific sense, that nonetheless, race does provide, um, you know, certain forms of community, certain kinds of identity that can be useful. So I think he has changed in different ways um, from his earlier work. And I try to track this over the course of my book.
1: Um. You start, uh, you follow um, that early chapter on African epistemologies with two chapters, uh, mm-hmm. one on race and one on culture. As um, basically, a stri- and, and, you know, this, this area of the book is um, kind of called like key ideas uh, as a way to try to introduce, I guess, readers into this, uh, into like the, the, the key ideas that, that Appiah has tried to. Explore or explain and analyze. Uh, uh, and these two ideas, race and culture, uh, you know, kind of as a way to try to deconstruct two big ones uh, in terms of this. Uh, the, sure. the question is about identity. Like, where, if we're going to think about identity as like this empty jar that we can fill with a number of things, how have race or culture stacked up to that challenge of, of filling that jar? Um, what was interesting in these two chapters? It's um, and I think whomever picks up this book is going to find it incredibly useful in that regard. It's just also how much work you do in terms of tracing the ways in which these two ideas have been understood and, and analyzed uh, by other academics, yeah. and then trying to place Apia within um, within those sort of two traditions. Um, and I wonder if you can just give us a sense of, in in your opinion, where where has Appiah made significant contributions in terms of our understanding of these two concepts, and how or how does he see the the usefulness or not usefulness of these two concepts as a means to try to understand you know social or cultural experience? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Um, I mean,
2: the, actually, let me just as a as a way of responding initially, let me sort of explain the structure of the book. I mean, the, the, spru- the structure of the book, the, the chapters, and there, there are six, um, excluding the introduction and, and the, the conclusion, um, the six chapters focus on key ideas. So, you know, the first idea is African epistemology is sort of the, you know, how do we think of um, African philosophy or the possibilities of African philosophy? Um, you know, what kind of knowledge comes out of Africa. And, you know, of course, as a scholar of Africa, this is a very important question to me. Um, and that's followed, again, as you mentioned, by race and then culture. Chapter four is about liberalism. Um, chapter five is about cosmopolitanism, and then six is about moral revolutions. And the reason why I want to bring up, you know, the other chapters is because I think the, you know, one way of understanding Apia's approach to race and, and culture Is to think about them in relation to his ideas of liberalism and and cosmopolitanism. Um, So, the first thing. So, so that's one way of framing it. And I think that um, as a liberal philosopher, um, Apia is very concerned with the individual. Um, He's very concerned with the the freedom of the individual, the the possibilities that the individual has to achieve his or her life plans, to to use an expression of John Stuart Mill. And one of the things that 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 can enable or restrict um, human freedom are ideas of race and ideas of culture. Um, clearly in our you know political presence and you know this really goes back, you know, for centuries, in many cases, you know, race and culture have been key elements of identity, of modern identity. And so, you know, as a liberal philosopher and particularly a you know, liberal philosopher who, you know, again, you know, was born in London, grew up in Kamasi, you know, went back to Britain for education. You know, this question of identity makes perfect sense. It, you know, Appiah was a person who had to confront this himself. And, you know, and by extension, he had to confront issues of, you know, cultural identity and racial identity. Um, And so I think that's, you know, one reason why, you know, race and culture are important to him. Um, Certainly, these are also important issues, particularly during the 1990s, when, um, you know, Appiah started, you know, producing the work like in my father's house that he has since become known for. And I think that, um, you know, just to provide some intellectual context too, I mean, you know, the, the 1980s and early 1990s, and I, I talk about this in my book, you know, this is a time of the cultural turn when a lot of academics were sort of revisiting questions of culture, um, being influenced by thinkers like, uh, the anthropologist Clifford Geertz, um, the, uh, cultural studies critic, uh, Stuart Hall, And so culture was very much a part of the mix, uh, and no doubt continues to be. But, you know, the cultural turn of the 80s, um, I think, certainly prompted Appiah to think about culture and engage with that discourse. Um, Of course, the discourse on race was, you know, also very important at that time. And one of Appiah's closest colleagues to this day is Henry Louis Gates, Um, you know, the Harvard literature professor who heads the, the Hutchins Center and the Du Bois Institute at Harvard. Um, and, you know, you know this, the 1980s was very much a period where, you know, figures like Gates, uh, Cornell West, um, and Appiah, you know, were challenging, you know, what was canonical thinking, you know, how can the African American experience, how can the Black experience Um, be part of um, the common uh, curriculum part of the common human experience and so race is very much a part of that 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 time as well and um, you know one thing I'll say about so so that's you know context and backdrop and you know the the kind of discourse that existed and that that Apia was intervening on Um, I will say too that you know Going to the specifics about what I write in both of those chapters, um, you know, the thing about race for Appiah, at least in his early work, um, he was very much about you know deconstructing it, saying that that race is false. It's it's um, it's a misleading identity, and he took it to a great extent. I mean, basically, he um, was not only you know positioning himself against Anti black racism by whites, um, you know, positioning himself against, you know, the use of of race and racism against minorities. Um, But he was also positioning himself against uh, pan Africanists who were using race, who were using blackness as a means of solidarity. And I think that was the controversial part that basically Appiah did not. Um, concede or did not um, think about how, you know, racial identity could be a galvanizing force for minority communities. And so, you know, people who had embraced black power, who, in the case of South Africa, embraced black consciousness, um, and, you know, people who had studied and, and, um, and had engaged with the, with the pan-African tradition for Appiah to intervene in the way that he did, I think it upset a lot of people. Um, and that's not my opinion alone. There were a lot of critics who came out and said that Appiah was taking a too narrow view of race. And, and what is meant by that is that Appiah said race doesn't exist, race is an illusion because there's no scientific basis for it. Ergo, race is a false identity. And one of the key targets of, of Apia's critique at that time was Du Bois and how Du Bois, basically Apia frames Du Bois as a person who was against racism, but couldn't find a way out of it, couldn't find a way out of race thinking. And, you know, basically a lot of people pointed out that, you know, this is a misunderstanding uh, of, of Du Bois and his approach, that basically Du Bois didn't think about race as purely a scientific or pseudoscientific category, but saw race as socio-historical. That is to say that blackness isn't, you know, isn't a category by descent, um, but it's it's, it's a historical formation. It's a social formation. And, you know, in this regard, I think that, you know, there really was a good counter-critique to Appiah's argument um, and I should say quickly too, the you know the the particular piece that that Apia you know has this discussion has this argument against race has this argument against Du Bois, is is titled "The Illusions of Race," and that rankled a lot of people. Um, you have people uh, like Lucius Outlaw, um, like uh, Lewis Gordon, you know, sort of coming out and saying that well. You know, it's not that easy to, you know, dismiss race or dismiss racism. That racism is systemic. That um, you know, it's it's much more entrenched. It's it's um, you can't simply have an analytic philosophical argument against race and boom, it's gone. Um, that you know, akin to Du Bois, um, race is a socio-historical formation that um, you know is is. Deeply ingrained, not only in in society, but you know, in the lives of of Black Americans, uh, of um, Black communities around the world, and so you know, there definitely was a pushback. Um, And it is important to note that you know, Appiah has since then you know softened his position. Um, He has a book on Du Bois based on a series of lectures that he gave uh, at Harvard. Uh, a book called Lines of Descent, which is, in a sense, much more conciliatory towards Du Bois and, you know, really understanding the kind of challenges that Du Bois faced um, during the late 19th and and early 20th century with regards to race. That, you know, in fact, um, Du Bois was not a tragic figure who was sort of caught up in you know, the, the discourse of his time and couldn't find a way out, but rather Du Bois was actively, you know, reinventing the discourse, saying that race isn't about science, it's about history and, and sociology. It's about how, you know, histories of enslavement, histories of anti-Black violence, um, histories of, of Black struggle and Black study have contributed to um, a Black identity. And we need to understand that. We need to appreciate that history. Um, And so the goal isn't to get rid of race or to get rid of, let alone get rid of Black identity, but rather to embrace it and understand its uh, multiple dimensions and and historical genealogies. And and, um, in his more recent work, Appiah has come to to think about that and, and, and embrace that. Um, going to culture very quickly, um, (laughs) as you can tell, I could talk about, you know, a number of these things at length, but to go to, you know, go to culture quickly. I mean, I think the main, the main thing for, for Apia here is actually there's several things. One thing is that, you know, culture has often been positioned against race as, you know, as a way of, of working around race. That is to say, if, if African Americans were not to be, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of uh, rehashing or or paraphrasing Apiya's thinking, but but also the thinking of other people, if if African American identity is not to be based on race, um, it could be based on culture, and in other words, culture um, provided a way of understanding community formation um, identity, um, and, and community struggle that wasn't anchored in race. Um, and another person who, you know, thought this, um, is, and I should say quickly, you know, you know, through a different framework is, is the anthropologist Franz Boaz, who as an anthropologist is very interested in culture, but, um, was also very critical of, of, understanding is a race difference. And, um, anyway, he's another influence on Appia. but I, but, but by extension, you know, something that even though Apia, like many others, finds culture as a way of, of, um, negotiating race, of, of displacing race, Apia is also very wary of, um, of, you know, uh, notions of cultural purity, notions of cultural authenticity, um, cultural homogeneity. And so when it comes to culture, you know, Apia has also deconstructed it and basically saying that, you know, um, you know, we have to understand culture as dynamic, as changing, as um, as defined by contamination, which is a term that he, he invokes in his later book, Con- Cosmopolitanism. And you know, the the thing here is, again, in a sense, it goes back to Kamasi, it goes back to Ghana, where, you know, Apia makes the point that, you know, well, first of all, there's no monolithic African culture. Um, but second of all, there's no monolithic Ghanaian culture, um, that we have to understand these places as, you know, defined by a rich array of, of cultural identities. And, and even if, um, you know, even if, such as himself, even if you are, um, you know, you do have Ashanti heritage. I mean, you might be born in London, you might be educated in Cambridge, you might, um, you know, uh, you know, live in New York city, um, all these things, you know, we can't use cultural identity in such a way that it, you know, predetermines or, or, or you know determines at all the the outlook or beliefs or practices of a person, and so um, culture is is different from race, of course. But you know, Apia also tackles it as one of these um, approaches for identifying people, and you know, basically saying it too can be a blunt instrument that you know people have multiple cultural identities, not a single one.
1: uh, sort of like the, the key ideas in Apia is that the place where we try to understand or we try to understand what the goals or what the limitations of any of this concept might be is in the individual uh and of course right. that that is part of what you what one one of the reasons why you identify him as basically a, a, a liberal philosopher so c- can right. we move that as you know, as you explore those two ideas, then you you follow that uh, with a chapter on liberalism and and the place that Appia occupies in there. Um, uh, you know how it's not a surprise. I mean, he has he himself has spoken about you know uh, how he engages with those ideas. Um, uh, but it's what's interesting yeah. about him again is that he's not both as an African philosopher and you know as someone that just has engaged with questions of identity he is right. not just um he's trying to build into that tradition some um some new questions and um so what are those new questions and how is he answering them well it, you know
2: it's interesting i mean i i think that um you know so just to to make a distinction between his books um so in my father's house which came out in 1992 um, is very much a, a statement about, um, you know, what, again, African identity, um, what does it mean to, you know, be African in, in the world? Um, you know, what is it, you know, it, it, it's him. So, and again, keep in mind that I should say quickly too, that he did publish um, before he, he did publish before um, he came out within My Father's House and, um- but really, in my father's house is the book that, you know, established him as a public intellectual, established him as an African philosopher. His earlier work was very much about, you know, analytic philosophy and, and very academic. And I should say quickly too, that I don't I mention it in my book, but I don't really get into it. Um, I really, for me, the starting point is, is in my father's house. So if In My Father's House is very much about you know, these questions of Africa, questions of African philosophy, knowledge of Africa, and so forth, um, his book, uh, The Ethics of Identity, which came out um, in 2005, um, that book is very much about, you know, liberalism and the, the varieties of liberalism and why Apia is a liberal philosopher. So, you know in a sense, it's another flag that he's planting. Um, and in fact, I, I make mention in, in my book, I think, you know, it's in the same way that In My Father's House is, is you know, very wide ranging, um, you know, it goes in different directions, has many different ideas and, and reference points. You could make the same case for The Ethics of Identity, that it's also a book, that is about the many varieties of liberalism. And it has a similar kind of capaciousness that, that, um, that In My Father's House has. And, and in many ways, the ethics of identity is, is um, you know, it, it, there's a kind of textbook quality to it. I mean, Appiah is, is very much a teacher in the book. He's very much, you know, guiding the reader through different aspects of liberalism um, and, you know, explaining them. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's also a personal book, you know, he's sort of searching through liberal thought, you know, making arguments and cases for certain dimensions and, and explaining why liberal philosophy appeals to him. And so, you know, I think that, that as a, as I, you know, touched upon my previous answer, I mean, one of the, one of the main things that appeals to to Apia about uh, a liberalism is again, it's about the individual. It's about the individual making their way in the world, uh, not being um, beholden to um, particular communities, uh, particular states, uh, particular politics. Um, liberalism is very much about you know individual freedom and pursuing. Um, Know, pursuing our own life plan and living a kind of truth through that. And again, for somebody like Appiah, who's you know multiracial, multicultural, uh, who's experienced all these different you know, you know, societies and geographies, um, it makes sense that you know, liberalism would have uh, a certain appeal to him that he, you know, it, it. it, it justifies or rationalizes, gives him reason to to be the com- the complex person that he is. Um, I will say quickly, too, though, that, you know, liberalism as a philosophy has a fraught history. And what I mean by that is if we think of somebody like John Stuart Mill, who is an important figure for Apia, and Apia, you know, readily says this, I mean, John Stuart Mill, you know, worked for the British East India Company. He was very much uh, a promoter and believer of British empire, um, British imperialism. Um, British imperialism is a way of improving the world. Um, you know, Mill believed that British imperialism could introduce liberal values to, the, to colonized peoples. And so there's a certain complexity here with regards to Apia then. Um, Certainly this is another reason why Appiah has critics that you know how could Apia this post-colonial intellectual uh, embrace this British thinker who in many ways was an imperial apologist and I think you know Appiah touches upon this and he touches upon it at different points in his work and he He does it delicately. I mean, he, in effect, Appia says he's not a historian. He's a philosopher. And he'll take useful ideas where he finds them. Um, That may or may not be adequate for some readers, but you know, that's one answer he's provided. Um, Another way of thinking about Appia and the liberal tradition, and this is something that I'm more sympathetic to, is that you know, the liberal tradition goes on. Um, Apia is basically, you know, redefining the and, uh, redefining liberalism for the present. And, you know, I think, you know, we can't simply, you know, condemn people in the present to, you know, what happened in the past. I mean, I'm certainly critical of John Stuart Mill um, and his beliefs on colonialism, but. You know, I, I, I do think the, the liberal tradition has things to offer and things to think about, and it's important to engage with that. And, and let me just say one other thing. Um, I think, and this in fact goes back to an original point that I made, that I think, you know, within African studies, within African intellectual history, um, you know, there is a strong tradition of, say, African socialism, African Marxism. And this is something I've written about myself and my other scholarship, and it's it's something I'm very interested in. Um, but I do think you know we have to think about you know African liberalism, you know what, you know what thinkers are engaging with that tradition, and um, I do think the liberalism of Appiah, in many ways, is a response to the kind of Marxist-Leninist ideas of a person like Kwame Nkrumah. Um I do think that the experiences of prison of a of, of prison that his father, Joe Apia, experienced, and in effect the denial of rights, the denial of freedom that his father experienced also informed Appia's, you know, strong belief in individual freedom, individual rights, and so forth. So, you know, I, I think they're are good ways of connecting Appia and sort of, you know, thinking about his liberalism in new ways.
1: Um, I think also it's it's, it's um, something that, like you said, in in, in uh, pretty much uh, is a philosopher, and his his way of thinking and his way of writing uh, comes uh, from his philosophical training. Uh, but but right. more narrowly, he's also an ethicist and and someone who's right. kind of trying to find um, very sort of practical ways of thinking about uh, yeah. how to live, you know, how to live a good life, you know, yeah. I mean, which is just like the ultimate ethical question. Um, and sort of that sort of uh, ties, uh, and in a way, the, the, the fact that he finds those, uh, some of those answers um, in, in sort of the liberal tradition is, is one thing. Uh, I think what's interesting is how he, like you said, he builds upon that and he speaks to that. Uh, maybe not as critically as, um, you know, I think I think that there's like like a really interesting divide between asking that question at an individual level, you know, you as an individual asking yourself how should I live my life, and but then asking that question at a more sort of like you know what was. What were the, the like the the moral faults of colonialism or something like that? That's this seems to be like a, a, yeah. a different sort of step. Uh, not that he shouldn't be asked to do it, you know. But 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 it is an an, an interesting right. precisely because he's an ethicist. It seems to be like a, an interesting question not to address more openly. Um, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No,
2: no, no, no. I, I'm sorry. I cut no, no, down. that's okay.
1: But anyway, I just wanted to sort of. Tied it on to to their next couple of chapters, you know, when he more specifically, sure. you specifically more <clears throat> talk about the the notion of cosmopolitanism, where he uh, mm-hmm. where he basically makes uh, a more pointed uh, argument to a specific way of living, you know, and you know, and he ties in uh, things, uh, you know, his his questions. About identity, uh, his ideas about uh, or his his ideas about how to live and how how to live in a world that uh, in which most of us don't have simple uh, discrete identities. Yeah. Um, and uh, and lastly, in in your last chapter, just how uh, how that may may or may not <laughs> uh, help in in changes. And again, here's probably interesting also to point out something that you uh, uh, remind us a lot throughout the book, you know, how for Appiah, ethics, it's more important than politics or comes first, uh, comes before politics. And I think in these last two chapters, it's, it's interesting to see him uh, trying to make those arguments. You know, it's like before we, we go into politics to think how to improve the world, we need to think about how to improve our personal lives, etc.
2: Right. I mean, just to build on that last point, um, I do think it's as you suggested, there's there's several points in the book where I say ethics, I, I sort of coin this um, phrase that I use more than once in the book as a matter of emphasis, which is to say, you know, for Apia, ethics precedes politics. Um, and I think, you know, and I should say quickly too, that I think at times that's frustrated um other people, that is to say that Apia um hasn't taken certain political stances when um other people might have or were hoped that he would have. Um, and but you know, I, I mean it goes back to your larger question about, you know, this this issue of ethics and moral philosophy and how Apia's main concern is, you know, how do we not just express individual freedom, um, not just, you know, pursue our identities, but how do we do this in a way that, you know, brings about a greater good and, um, you know, brings about a more, you know, general or societal happiness. Um, And I think this is really important to understand. I mean, I, I think that um of course there there are versions of liberalism that are just about the individual um and you know this goes back to you know the idea of of utilitarianism that is to say that the purpose of life is just to maximize happiness and individual happiness and um even though there's you know part of Appia that i think is sympathetic to that i think there you know certainly other parts of his of his work that suggests that you know personal happiness is tied to societal happiness that you can't simply you know pursue your own interests and and call that an ethical life. Um, but yeah, I mean to go to to go to cosmopolitanism and then moral revolutions. Um, I will say, and you know this also goes back to liberalism and the ethics of identity. Um, I mean these are you know these are three. Discussions, liberalism, cosmopolitanism, and and moral revolutions. These are the three discussions that you know, in a sense, mark his move away from African issues. You know, he's and I don't think he, as I mentioned at the start, he he's not he doesn't ever you know completely abandon um, his engagement with with Ghana or Africa more generally. But certainly his more recent work has, has sought to speak to larger issues and larger audiences. Um, and specific to cosmopolitanism, I think you know it's, a, it's an idea that is connected to the liberal tradition. Um, another contemporary philosopher who contemporary liberal philosopher who's also engaged with cosmopolitanism, who I talk about in my book is Martha Nussbaum. And you know, in both cases, both Appia and Nussbaum, I mean, they're both liberal philosophers who are, you know, basically using cosmopolitanism as a way to in a sense scale up liberal thinking. And what I mean by that is that liberal thought, you know, ideas of the individual um, the freedom of the individual is basically about, um, you know, is, is, done in association with a state, whether that state is, you know, the government of a nation state or, you know, uh, you know, the metropole of an empire. And what cosmopolitanism does is sort of break out of that, um, Cosmopolitanism, and I should say quickly, you know, isn't about just jet setting. Um, it's not about, you know, fashion as we have with, you know, Cosmopolitan magazine. But it's very much about, you know, this this stoic philosophy, um, you know, started by Diogenes the Cynic, which, you know, who basically he was, you know, this stoic philosopher who declared, "I'm a citizen of the cosmos. I'm a citizen of the world." And so it's a concept of citizenship that's not tied to the nation state. It's not tied to a small community, but it's tied to the world. It's tied to something much larger. And so the question then becomes well, what are our responsibilities in that situation? What are the responsibilities of the citizen of the world? To whom do we owe our attention, um, our labors? our, our um, moral guidance are, you know, where do we direct our ethics in that kind of situation? And, you know, clearly this speaks to our global moment. Um, And Apia, you know, being the ambitious philosopher that he is, is using cosmopolitanism as a way of thinking about how do we engage ethically with our global present. I should say as well that, you know, for me, and I talk about this in the book, Given the fact that Appiah has been critical of Pan-Africanism, I sort of see cosmopolitanism as his, as in a sense his quote-unquote Pan-Africanism. That is to say that you know Appiah uses cosmopolitanism in the same way that Black thinkers use Pan-Africanism. Black thinkers use Pan-Africanism, and you know whether it's Du Bois or, or Marcus Garvey. You know, used various forms of Pan-Africanism to create a broader community, to create a broader global community, and Appiah uses cosmopolitanism in the same way. Cosmopolitanism is a way of you know thinking about the world, you know, thinking about a global community, but of course, you know, without you know the kind of race-based thinking that Pan-Africanism does. So you know, I think that that. In this regard, we have to, you know, think about cosmopolitanism again as not just, you know, being in the being in a global present. You know, it's not just about, you know, living in New York and having family in, in Lagos or Accra. It's not about, you know, traveling or being, you know, highly literate and multilingual. It's about ethics. It's about, you know, how do we ethically live in the world? And you know, just one quick reference point. Um, Another key thinker in in cosmopolitanism is is Adam Smith, um, the Adam Smith of the Wealth of Nations, (laughs) the eighteenth-century philosopher. And you know, basically, his lesser-known, at least among popular audiences, his lesser-known work, the Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is basically a book of, of, of moral philosophy, not economics. And Adam Smith basically asks, you know, what are our responsibilities um, to people across the world? If an earthquake happens in China that kills yeah. thousands of people, what sort of feeling or sense of responsibility should we have? Um, should we have a greater sense of attachment to the people near us, who we see on an everyday basis, or should we have equal an equal sense of duty and attachment to people? Across the world, who we don't know, who we don't share a same, who we don't share a common language, who uh, in in some ways we might never meet, should we send money to them? And you know, it's this basic question because they too are human beings. Um, you know, does this suggest does geograph does geography does geographic distance suggest a kind of inequality within humanity? And you know, this is the basic question that, that Adam Smith is raising, and it's a question that Apia re-engages with. Um, should we care about people in other parts of the world the same way that we care about our own family? And, you know, Apia's answer to that question is, um, is in a sense, a practical one. Um, we should, at a certain level, care about both. But you know, there are good reasons for caring about the people around us in a more direct way. Um, that is to say, we shouldn't completely sacrifice ourselves. You know, donate all our money to people we don't know. And you know, there's some people who make critique Api on this that you know maybe it's it's a bit conservative on his part or not radical enough. But nonetheless, you know these are the sorts of questions that Appia raises in his book, Cosmopolitanism. I haven't gotten to Moral Revolutions yet, but I think I should stop. <laughs> Maybe.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I, and to some extent, Moral Revolutions—it's—it's. It's, I mean, it continues that debate, isn't it? To like just basically trying to find yeah. questions of honor, questions of like if we're going to be in this non-state, uh, world where there should be certain, you know, mechanisms or ideas or moral codes that can, um, help us understand how, how much to care and what to care about. Uh, what are those, you know, and how do we engage, how do we affect those change? How do we put them in place? And and again, he's deconstructing those notions of honor and, you know, shame, responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to 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 investigate to what extent there they are good or not good guides um, to to changes in our moral codes.
2: Yeah well just I mean just to talk about that book very quickly I think you know um, it should be said the title of the book is The Honor Code and but the book is about you know this concept of moral revolutions. And I I think the I think there's several important things about that book. I mean I I think one thing is that Appia is pointing is pointing to how living ethically can lead to larger change. And in a sense, I think he's responding to critics who are saying Appia is too apolitical that he's too much the philosopher, too much the ethicist, and not and not enough an activist. And Apia is basically saying, well, you know, Living honorably, living ethically, can contribute to broader social change. Hence, this idea of moral revolutions. And I should say that. Um, so, I mean, what's useful here is that, you know, when we think of the concept of revolution, we think about, you know, the overthrow of governments, um, you know, the complete transformation of states, um, you know, the upending of economies. Um, you know these dramatic changes that result in um, you know a kind of epical um, change and difference you know this is how we think of revolution often violent um, you know there's a human cost and so forth moral revolutions are different you know they're about changing changes in perception changes in practices you um, changes in the way people see the world and how they see the world from an ethical standpoint. And so in this book, he talks about, um, well, the first example is the end of dueling. That is, you know, two men, you know, resolving a dispute by, you know, shooting one another. Um, the end of dueling in in England during the, during the early 19th century, he talks about the end of foot binding in China Uh, late 19th early 20th centuries Um, he talks about the ending of the slave trade Um, and he talks about honor killings um, in different parts of uh, central asia Um, he focuses particularly on, on pakistan and in all these cases i mean you have you know some kind of violence you know whether it's you know shooting another man or 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 um, in the case of honor killings, you know, killing a woman, um, or in the case of, I mean, clearly the violence of the transatlantic slave trade, or the violence of, of binding the feet of, of Chinese girls and women, um, the ways in which that violence isn't, at least for Apia, isn't ended through other violence, but instead ended through some kind of change in moral perception. So, um, but as in the case of honor killings in Central Asia, that change hasn't completely happened. He talks about it as being very much a presentist issue. Um, But just to say that, you know, I think the important thing here is that, that Apia talks about how certain honor worlds, that is say, you know, the world of... You know, dueling among you know British elites um, came to an end because that honor world was seen as as you know immoral, or we could say the honor world, um, the idea of binding uh, the feet of girls and women as a way of protecting their their chastity, as a way of um, you know you know as a way of purifying them, that notion of honor as being ultimately seen as as wrong, um, being, again, the end of another honor world, so on and so forth. The point being that um, social change, societal change, can come through certain kind of moral pressures. This is the argument that Appiah makes. So it's a case for moral philosophy bringing about broader social change. Um I will say I do have critiques of this approach as well. I'm, I'm not. I'm, you know, I, it raises questions for me. Um, but yeah, that's something I talk about in the book. But nonetheless, I think the concept of a moral revolution is a, is an interesting one to think with.
1: No, uh, <clears throat> and you know, I mean, I think in a way it's not a. Like you said, it's 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 a, a one to be expected response uh, from someone who, uh, obviously. Cares so deeply about this this notion of um, changing uh, ideas about how to behave and how to uh, how to be a better person, or and how that connects to becoming a better society too. Um, now, I just have one last question, <laughs> you know, in general about the book. Um, sure. One thing that is really striking um, about Appiah's writing, uh, like you said, is that. In a way, he's he's a philosopher. He's trying to engage in philosophical questions, um, and, but the the kinds of tools that he gives other social scientists, um, his analysis of, uh, you know, of history or his uh, the way in his some of the concepts, uh, his understanding of identity, his understanding of cosmopolitanism, can uh, be useful tools uh, uh, for other academics, if not necessarily to, I mean, I I even think that probably even activists, but um, how do you see that? How do you see his not necessarily his just academic contributions of of his analysis, Mm -hmm. but uh, in terms of like looking at his concepts or his ideas as as tools of analysis, um, um, what are your conclusions with that regard?
2: <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I I think that um, I think one way of answering that. I mean, I in truth, doing this project, I've I've taken away different things. Um, certainly, it's a project that you know I've I've gained a lot from in in terms of you know immersing myself in the the writing and thinking of a particular person. And um, I have different projects that I'm you know sort of contemplating and and thinking about. Um, as an outcome of this book. and I sort of knew that in advance too, that you know, I wanted to use this book as a way, as an excuse in some ways to 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 get more deeply into apia and and use that as a stepping stone to something else. Um, but I think that, you know to 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 go to your the the way I'm taking your question at the moment, which is to say not just about academic projects, but actually, living in the world. Um, You know, I think the thing that I appreciate about Appiah is is his, you know, his sense of skepticism, you know, the kind of critical stance he has towards certain identities or identity more generally. And just sort of, you know, the need to constantly interrogate um, identities for their inconsistencies. Um, to understand that identity, especially single identities, don't predetermine the person. Whether those identities are identities of race, class, gender, country, religion, um, you know, we have to, you know, constantly, in a sense, push back or. Um, you know, learn how to define ourselves and embrace the specificity of ourselves against identities that would have us, you know, be singular beings, whether black or white, you know, Republican or Democrat, American or South African, you know, whatever it might be, I think that you know Apia has given us tools, ways of thinking about, uh, ways of being multiple um, you know having multiple identities at the same time and you know the position that he's sort of arrived at and this is in particular with the lies of the bind you know and this is how in a sense I conclude the book you know sort of thinking about how yes identities are fictions um, in many cases you know race, you know, there's no scientific basis for race or, um, you know, things of that nature. But nonetheless, you know, these identities do shape our lives. They do impact our lives, which is to say that fiction, you know, impacts how we live. You know, fiction is, is something, you know, whether in the form of identity whether in the form, whether in the way we imagine the present or the past or the future, um, we often live in such a way that we're constantly pushing back reality. And I know that might sound like an odd thing, because you know we might sit in a room or be on a street or be in a classroom or you know be in any number of contexts and and be like. Yeah, we're in the world. But I, I think that what Appiah is saying is that while that may be true, um, we might not be confronting certain things. We might um, you know, be placing ourselves behind a kind of veil um, to invoke Du Bois um, as a way of, of managing the world, that we embrace certain fictional identities or fictional ideas I, I, ideas about the present as a way to protect ourselves, as a way to manage the complexity of the world, and I find that very interesting. I find it. I mean, in fact, it's it's something that um, it's something I continue to to sort of ponder. How maybe the goal of life, as as Apia has understood it, isn't to strip away the illusions, but rather to understand how we use illusions, illusions of identity, illusions of the world to make our way in the world. And it's not to say that we should, you know, live in some sort of fantasy world um, just to satisfy ourselves. I mean, I think there are hard truths that we should engage with, but but I think what, what Apia has been asking and and sort of, you know, demanding that we think about is, again, this, this sort of um, relationship between fact and fiction and how this relationship of fact and fiction impacts our lives and how we have to constantly negotiate that. And we have to bring, and one way of negotiating that, that difference of fact and fiction is through ethics. You know, does knowing the truth enable us to live an ethical life? does, you know, engaging in a kind of fiction enable us to live an ethical life? I think these are interesting questions.
1: Mm, they are, indeed. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you left me thinking there. Um, yeah. Um, okay, well, I think I've taken a lot of your time now. Um, if you want to tell us uh just briefly what you're working on or what now that you finished this project, sure. what's, what's occupying you?
2: Well, I mean, in truth, I'm, I mean, and this is a total shift in gears. Um, I mean, I, one thing I, what, the book that I'm working on right now that, that actually I'm finishing, it should be out um, early this fall, like September or October is a collection of writings by this writer named Alex Laguma. Uh, South African writer and activist. Um, he's very different. One reason I laugh. He's very different from Apia in the sense that um, he was a member of the Communist Party of South Africa, um, very much a you know Marxist thinker. So intellectually very different from Apia. However, I will say they they do have similarities insofar that um, the particular book that I'm working on is is a collection of exile writings that Laguma wrote between 1966 when he left South Africa for exile and 1985 when he died from a heart attack in Havana, Cuba. And the upshot is that Laguma, you know, spent close to two decades in exile and he wrote a lot. Um the book is is it's big. It's the publisher estimates it'll be over 600 pages long. And I think even though intellectually both Apia and Laguma are different, they nonetheless were confronting similar sets of questions. You know, how to live in the world, you know, how to, to find a home in the world. And, you know, clearly the politics of Laguma are much more direct. And, you know, he was fighting against, you know, the white minority rule of the apartheid regime. And you know the politics of of Apia are very clear. Um, he wasn't a philosopher in the the sense that Appiah was. but but again, I, I think what attracts me to both of these figures are the ways in which they they were confronting the questions of their time. and um, they both, you know, fall into the frame of of African intellectual history. And, you know, attempts to, you know, negotiate the world that they confronted and, you know, questions of identity, questions of belonging, questions of injustice, and questions of home.
1: Wow, excellent. So, So very quickly, we will probably have you back. Yeah, we can talk
2: about this (laughs) in another interview.
1: (gasps) Well, thank you so much. Um, that sounds, uh, I, I thank you very much for your yeah. time and for sharing with us, not just the book. I mean, uh, you very quickly mentioned in the introduction that you hope this book will be helpful for you know, other people trying to engage with the ideas of apia. And I can strongly say that it will. And I mean, it is very, very, very thorough. Thank you. And um, and I think it will be incredibly useful for anyone trying to uh, understand um the work of this uh fantastic philosopher so thank you very much thank you. and um i hope to have you soon and talk to you soon thank, thank you thank you so much